Andrew, um, you in your past life, you had a PhD, you still do have a PhD in neuroscience, uh, but these days you are a pastor of a church in Greenwich. Yeah, Grace Church, Greenwich. Grace Church, Greenwich. Brilliant. And um, maybe you might share a little more in your talk, and, but maybe we're good to hear a bit from, from you right now. Uh, before you became a pastor, you might call yourself an atheist, agnostic. Yes, I grew, I grew up in a um, sort of nominally Christian house. So my parents didn't, didn't go to church, but I was baptised. <laughs> they got married in church. Yes, yeah, so a sort of, I guess, standard British cultural association to the church, but not really believing in Jesus. And I was kind of searching for answers as a teenager, like everyone does, you're know, trying to find my way in the world. And I didn't think answers were to be found in traditional religion. I, you know, I, I liked the music and I liked the sort of ambience of cathedrals, but I didn't think there was truth there. So I was looking at, I was a science student, as you mentioned, and I was looking at writings of Richard Dawkins and um, sort of some Quakerism, sort of mysticism, all, like all sorts of things, but not really Jesus. Yeah. And then things changed when I went to university. I met some Christians who had really thought through some of these issues and they got me thinking and some of the things they said surprised me. And I started look, at, actually asking questions about Jesus, not just about religion. And I became convinced that he is alive and he's the and the Lord and Saviour of the world. So hence I'm a Christian today. Great. Big change. Big change. Yeah, yeah big change. In fact, such big change. We um, obviously when I was at university, I know I look young, but I was actually Facebook hadn't been invented for quite some time. But the, the internet only sort of appeared when I was at uni. Um, and so when Facebook came out, we then started discovering each other. So we reconnected with school friends and you know, one person added somebody and then et cetera, et cetera. And we when we were about 40. Um, we kind of had this reunion and hadn't seen each other for most of us for sort of 20, 23 years. And there's something of a scandal like, Andy Satch is a Christian? Because I think I really hadn't been at school and people couldn't believe that I was a vicar. So, yeah, that was a novelty, the novelty news amongst others of the school reunion. Oh, well done. Um, do you want to share a bit more about what's your, your big hope for people today? I mean, people may have different questions coming here. Um, if you say, what's a big hope for people to take away, what would it be? Um, well, I, I'm going on holiday, as you can see from my choice of shirts, straight after this, so I'm going to make a sharp exit, but I, I hope, um, well, the, the title of the book is provocative, deliberately, you know, sort of cheekily provocative. Are you 100% sure you want to be agnostic? And I, I just hope that it might cause you to ask that question. So if you come and you're cynical about Jesus, or if you're watching and you're cynical about Jesus, um, I wonder whether you might be a little bit less cynical um, and a little less comfortable on the fence because I think most people in most people in England aren't atheists. Most people in England aren't Christians. They're just I don't know, I don't care, and maybe that's you. That would certainly be representative, I guess, of people in Covent Garden. And I hope at the end of this, you might be less happy with not being sure, and a bit more optimistic that you could be sure. That's the hope. Brilliant. I'm going to hand over to you. Thanks. So click this on. Thanks, Jill. Do you want to take that as well? So, so. This could go wrong if I tie myself, if I tether myself to it in the wrong way. Here we are. Good. Um, better not to be dogmatic. No one likes a crazed fanatic. Here's a boy who's got his wits on the fence. That's where he sits, saying no one's right or wrong. Maybe, baby, 
maybe baby. That's the chorus of the cool agnostic song. Buddha, Allah, I don't care. He's to say what God is there. I love Man Yu, she loves Spurs. I've got my tree, she's got hers. They don't need to disagree. Maybe baby, maybe baby. That's what I say to your Christianity. Um, agnosticism is about saying maybe. Um, it's about not being sure. It's about sitting on the fence. And it's an increasingly popular position, as I mentioned. So um, the British Social Attitudes Survey, it's a big demographic study of um, the UK. And once every 10 years, they cover religion as one of their topics. And in 1998, they found that 17% 17, 17 of the British population thought of themselves as non-religious. But in 2018, so 20 years later, that had risen to 44%. So doubling the proportion of the population who think of themselves as non-religious. Yet, as the eminent church historian Peter Briley explained to me recently, when you explore what those non-religious believe, you find a surprising percentage of them believe in religious things. So for example, 47% of non-religious people think of themselves as spiritual. 35% of them believe in a higher power of some kind. Even 34% of them believe in life after death of some kind. So these, these aren't atheists. They're not saying, I didn't believe in anything beyond the material world. That's actually a diminishing position. There's some fanatics who are, you know, believe that all we are is random atoms, but not many people think that now in Britain. Um, people believe there's something spiritual, there's something beyond, but they just don't want to be pinned down to a particular faith or a particular organized religion. In fact, people are concerned when people are too committed to a religious ideology, because it's when people are overcommitted that other people get hurt and killed. You know, the, the kind of religious fanatics who might blow people up because they disagree with them. Enthusiasts can be exclusive. Dogmatism is dangerous. Creeds can be cruel. Believers can be blinkered. Anything can be alphabetized. And people are wary of the excesses of any belief system. And so instead people prefer to identify as agnostics. And um, the comedian Marcus Brigstock puts it well. He says this, the truth as I see it is that I'd rather stay in a place of confusion amongst similar restless souls shuffling about in the hope that there might be a sign pointing in one direction or another than leap aboard whichever bandwagon looks like it's got some momentum behind it and a confident driver. We might find God. We should probably have a plan for that in case we startle him and he goes for us. I don't mind if we don't find him. I'd be just as happy to discover that whatever road this is that I'm on, I'm not walking it alone. Um, anyway, so it's a kind of popular position. Maybe it's your position. And I want to just distinguish the three different ways in which you can be agnostic. So agnostic just means I don't know. That's what the Greek word means. But there's three kind of ways you can not know. On the one hand, you can believe that something is knowable, but you just don't yourself know it. So... You know, I don't know the recipe for that delicious looking soup that some of the people here are eating. Sorry to those who are watching on Zoom, but it looks good. I don't know the recipe. I mean, it would be possible to find out the recipe, probably. I mean, I could ask the chef or you, know, you could kidnap and talk to the chef or, you know, there'd be, there'd be various ways of finding out, but I just haven't pursued those ways of finding out and say, I don't know. And in a similar way, you could say, you know, I'm agnostic about Jesus. It would be possible to find out about him. I mean, I could 
read one of the early biographies of his life written by um, people who knew him and saw him. Um, that, I would suggest that's quite a good idea, but you just you haven't done that, and so you don't know. And there's lots of people who are agnostic just because they haven't looked. And I hope that maybe at the end of today, you might think, well, it's worth looking. But there's another kind of agnostic that is more absolute in their agnosticism. They're not just saying, I don't know, because I haven't checked. They're saying, we can't know. Like, it wouldn't be possible to know for sure about these issues of God and the origins of the universe and the way it's all going to end and who is Jesus. And like, how could anyone know that? But, but to, to assert confidently, you can't know, ironically, is not a very agnostic position. In fact, they're not very agnostic about their own agnosticism. They're kind of saying, I know dogmatically that you cannot know dogmatically. And I'm, well, it's kind of ironic. And I mean, how do you know that? I mean, to say that you know that there is not enough evidence one way or the other is actually a claim to have assessed all of the evidence. And you'd have to have researched everything. And of course, no one has. I mean, it would be like saying, I know that there is no treasure hidden in Leicestershire. I mean, like, how would you know that? You'd have to have dug everywhere. What if there was a gold necklace hidden in a detergent bottle and a postcode that the police hadn't raided? I mean, let's face it, the University of Leicester Archaeological Services, who do more digging than most of us, they didn't even know until a few years ago that the bones of King Richard III were buried under their local car park. I mean, to, to know that something doesn't exist or to know that evidence doesn't exist is very self-confident. You have to have researched absolutely everything. Um, and of course, you haven't. So there's the I don't know, I haven't checked. Well, check, maybe. There's the you can't know. Well, how do you know that you can't know? Doesn't sound very logical. But that just leaves the third kind of agnostic. And I think this is the most popular kind. This kind isn't so much I don't know or I can't know, but I don't want to know. That's what this is really about. I mean, the reason I haven't looked into Jesus is because I'm not really sure I'd like what I found if I did look at it. You know, I'm going through my life and you know, life's good and I work in Covent Garden and I work at home, um, those of you on Zoom, and you know, I'm enjoying myself and it's a sunny day and I don't really want to get involved in religion because, you know, isn't that the thing that would suck all the joy out of my life? I think that was my suspicion at university. I had Christian friends and they weren't boring and they were, you know, happy, friendly, intelligent people. But somehow I still had this, you know, I thought that was a sort of fluke, like you managed to be happy and and interesting despite being Christian because I thought surely the Christian bit of it must be the bit that sucks out of the joy out of your life um, and you know if you summed up the Christian ethic in a word it would be don't um, if you could um, imagine a Christian party it would be you know people would be drinking schlur which one of my friends describes as Christian champagne um, if you were to choose the best Netflix thing to watch with a bunch of Christians they would be one to watch songs of praise you know that, it's just that's the stereotype isn't it which is why um, it's quite surprising in the bible to, to realize that one of jesus first recorded miracles is when he turned water into wine and i think the last time i gave this talk i might have actually tried to do this i've got some chemicals at home so i used to be a chemist and well, i did um first degree in in natural sciences started with chemistry so i i can do water into wine except that 
you know, I can make it look like it. You pour some clear stuff into a glass and it goes red, except it's like quite a strong laxative and stuff that I use. So it doesn't taste, it doesn't taste very much like wine. So it's not really quite as good as Jesus doing it. But, um, but my friend just, just said that it wasn't so much the miracle that surprised him. You know, I mean, why shouldn't the God who made the universe do some unusual things? Like if Jesus really is God, then obviously he could do unusual chemistry. That wasn't the surprising thing. Ben said the surprising thing for him was that Jesus wasn't going around the world turning all the wine into water. It wasn't that what we thought of God, that his greatest fear was that someone somewhere might be having too much fun and he'd have to immediately cancel it. I mean, you know, when's the last time you were at a party that said, oh, this party's a bit boring? Why didn't anyone invite more Christians? It's, just, it's not the stereotype, is it? But yet, um, here's Jesus creating the equivalent of more than 800 bottles of wine at a party. It tells you how much it was. It's, it's a lot of wine. That's a surprise to people. I mean, isn't God supposed to be anti-parties and anti-alcohol and anti-sex? And Well, like, of course not, if you think about it. I mean, of course not, God's not anti-sex. I mean, if God created us, not an accident that our bodies fit together sexually and that that's enjoyable. I mean, it's about where certain parts of your body are placed and where the nerve cells are placed. And I mean, you know, the creator of a human body didn't, um, must have intended the sexual capacities of human body. And of course, God invented sex. God thinks sex is good. He, he puts limits on sex in the Bible, but that's because a good thing used badly can really hurt you. And, you know, we know that, don't we? You've only got to say um, the name's Harvey Weinstein or Jimmy Savile to know that not all sex is good. There could be harmful sex. And, you know, sex by itself, in itself, is a gift of a kind God. Or alcohol. I mean, alcohol used badly can really hurt people. I've got um, a close friend of mine died um, as an alcoholic and, you know, totally destroyed the family. So alcohol used badly, it can really hurt people. You've only got, you've only got to go to an A&E department on a Friday night in a hospital and see that. But alcohol used rightly, it can be very enjoyable. Um, God isn't anti these things. He's the creator of these things. Jesus goes to a party. He, um, he celebrates the wedding that's at the heart of it and makes a lot of wine. So I want to suggest, if that's you, if you're keeping it at arm's length because it might be awful, I want to suggest it, it isn't awful. And the best demonstration of that is probably think of Christian friends that you know who maybe have invited you here. I don't, I don't know most of you, so I don't know he's a Christian and he's a guest, but think of Christian friends you know. Is their life joyless? I doubt it. I think Jesus actually brings enormous joy. But, okay, how could we know that? Because I don't want joy if it's just pretend joy. You know, if Christianity is just a fairy story that, Seems appealing. I don't want that. I want reality only. Um, good on you. But um, actually, we can be sure. I want to read a, par a par paragraph from the Bible, and I'm going to speak about this in the rest of our time. It's taken from a letter written by one of Jesus' friends, a guy called John, to um, some early Christians in the first century. So this is John the fisherman who knew Jesus personally and writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest we've seen it we testified to it we proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and have made manifest to us 
that which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us indeed our fellowship is with the father with his son jesus christ we're writing these things that our joy may be complete now maybe you think that just sounds like a paragraph from the bible you know i want to suggest it's a very surprising paragraph because it combines two kinds of literature, which are in themselves are quite ordinary, but never ever get combined. Um, so on the one hand, it's um, a paragraph about philosophy. Um, I quite like um, contemporary philosophy in particular, I like philosophy explored in modern art. So my favorite gallery is the White Cube in Bermondsey, if you've ever been there, just down from London Bridge Station. I recently went, just before the pandemic, I went to see an exhibition of 350 paintings by Peter Dreyer, the celebrated German artists, each measured 10 by eight inches, each depicted the same empty glass of water. And Peter Dreher has painted this same glass of water almost every day since 1974. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? You can imagine him saying to his wife, you know, well, what are you doing today, darling? Oh, I thought I might paint that glass of water again and then maybe go for a walk in the park. And, you know, I mean, and they're amazing pictures. I mean, they're not sort of dashed off. They're beautifully capturing all the sort of accidents of the light refracted or whatever. And um, as you read the blurb that goes with it, it tells us that um, Peter Dre is grappling with questions of light and time. And I thought he's just painting a glass, but he's got philosophical things to say about this glass. And all, all modern art galleries are full of philosophy. And this paragraph in the Bible is about philosophy, that which was from the beginning, that which is the essence of life. Yeah. Any, any water stones in the spirituality section, whatever it's called now, um, has books like that. That's, that's normal. Philosophizing is normal. And meanwhile, my um, stepbrother, Thomas, works for a concert hall in Essex, Saffron Hall. And um, on his Facebook, he recently um, said that the young person's um, what's it called? The best, the Young Musician of the Year awards are going to be are going to happen in um, the his concert hall. He's very excited about it. And then he posted some reflections on a concert he went to recently. And th this is normal. Something that I went to, something that I saw, an event in my diary on Facebook. That's normal. But what you don't ever get is those two combined. Something that happened to you in your diary and philosophy and the biggest questions of life. I mean, you think, by which I mean this, you never get someone writing and saying, well, you'll never guess who walked into the micro pub around the corner for me um, last night. The beginning of the universe walked in. <laughs> it's sort of jarring, isn't it? So the massive philosophy and the everyday parochial. But actually, that's exactly what John says. For him, the biggest philosophical questions that we face as human beings of a person he met and went on boat trips with, with his brother and spent three years of his life with having meals and traveling up to the north of Israel in Galilee and down to the south of Israel to Jerusalem and meeting various people on the way. And he writes this, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we saw with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, the, the life appeared you know we we saw it we heard it we we proclaimed to you what we've seen and heard so what he's saying is that philosophy i mean how could you ever know about philosophy how could you ever really know what life was or what is the answer to the origins of the universe or how will it all end and it's just you know hand waving philosophy but he's no, no it's, i met him 
I took him in my boat. And of course, he's talking about Jesus. But for John, philosophy is a person. And these questions are answered in a person. And the reason that's really helpful is it's a lot easier to be sure about a person than it is to be sure about philosophy. So if somebody asks you, what did you do when you're um, Thursday lunchtime? You say, oh, I went to this talk in Neil Street Espresso and there was a bloke with a bald head who talked about Jesus. <coughs> Are you sure you did? Yeah, of course I am. Like, you know, it's not difficult, is it, to be sure about an event that you witnessed? Are you sure that the speaker didn't have a head of ginger hair? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's pretty bald. Like details of eyewitness events you can be sure about. But for John, the eyewitness events are a person who he thinks is the answer to all philosophy and all truth. Well, then the question comes, well, what convinced him of that? Because one thing you're sure about having listened to me for about 50 minutes is that I am a bald bloke from Greenwich, as opposed to being the creator of the universe. I think you, I mean, anyone here think that I might be the creator of the universe? It's a sort of blasphemous question to ask questions, but no, I mean, no one is even remotely tempted to think that, are they? Of course, like, of course I'm not, I'm just an ordinary Blake, but just think, what would it take to not just hang out with me for an hour, but to hang out with me for three years, you know, basically live with me for three years, and at the end of it conclude, no, he definitely is God. Like, what would that take? Because that's what, actually what happened to, to John. He... He's writing about this guy, Jesus, who is his friend. And he said, I'm absolutely sure now that I met the one who was from the beginning. The one who is life. Like, what would it take to convince you that about your friend? And of course, it's the things that he saw and heard, which were not normal things. You know, they go to a wedding and they've run out of wine. And Jesus gets some jars and fills them with water and then turns it into wine. And that isn't normal. People can't normally do that. They go on a fishing trip and Jesus isn't there. Um, and then Jesus joins them by walking across the water to join them in their boat. And people say, oh, people in those days, they didn't understand science. You don't need to know a lot of science, do you, to know that people do not walk on water, especially if you're a fisherman. You figure that out pretty early. You get out the boat, you sink up to your neck. You certainly don't sink up to your toes. What's going on? And they, they meet a man who's been blind from birth. And Jesus makes some mud with spit, some sort of paste, mud paste, and puts it on his eyes and says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he goes and washes and then he can see. And you, you know, I don't know if you're skeptical about miracles in the Bible. I, I used to be. Um, and I thought maybe it's just been faked or whatever. But it's quite difficult to fake something involving a guy who's been blind from birth. You know, it's not like I meet one of you outside, so I'm going back to this talk and it's going to be a bit dull. So just to spice it up a minute, do you mind hobbling in on crutches and you know, I'll give you 50 quid. And then if it's a key point in the middle of the talk, you suddenly go, hey, and then dance out. Yep, that. Here we go. You know, you could, you could set up some sort of fake healing miracle. Harder to do with someone who's been blind from birth. I mean, how are you going to arrange that? You arrive you know, just before the, the mother gives, goes into labor and says, you know, I'll give you 50 quid, please. Can you persuade your son to pretend he can't see like for his entire life and they'll be back in 30 years time. I mean, you, you can't set it up, can you? And you can't conceal the evidence for this because people are going to know about this guy, like the people in the town where he lives, they know him and they know he's blind and they know if he can see. And 
when the New Testament records things like this, it, it kind of tells you who and where and who saw it and who the witnesses are and who the family are. And it's kind of checkable. It's not sort of fairy story. I could make up a miracle that I did in the Forest of Dean in 1982 when I was on my own and I levitated a fox for 35 seconds. And you're thinking, no, you didn't. Because like, there's no witnesses. No one's there. But to say, oh, this is what I did to a blind person who lived in this town, and this is his family. I mean, if you could be bothered, you could pretty easily debunk it because you just go to the town and ask, them, no, there's no such guy. Right? So it, these are specific recorded eyewitness miracles. And John says a normal person can't do that. Right? This must be God. And then he says, and I love this line, he says, that which we've seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched with our hands. And I think he's talking about one specific miracle, um, maybe the greatest miracle of all, which is the Easter Sunday miracle. When Jesus has been executed on a cross, he dies by crucifixion on Good Friday. And three, years, um, three days later, the tomb is empty and people begin to say that Jesus has been seen alive. And Thomas, who people call Doubting Thomas, but for the purposes of today's talk, I'm going to call him Agnostic Thomas. Agnostic Thomas goes, I can't, I can't believe that. I can't believe that someone who is dead is now alive again. However much I might want to believe it, you know, I'm not gullible. And so um, he says, I, I wouldn't believe it unless I personally were to see him and put my fingers in the marks where they put the nails at the crucifixion. <laughs> Now, if you think about it, that is pretty good evidence because by examining the execution scars, you can verify two things. Firstly, that you know, this guy's alive because by touching someone, you can find out whether they're alive, I think. Um, but secondly, you're verifying that the person who's alive is the same as the person that they killed. Right? So you're checking the marks of execution and the marks of life. And Thomas says, I'd need to see that. If you're a fan of um, not modern art, but um, um, older art, I really recommend Caravaggio's picture, um, The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And you can find it on Google Images. It's an amazing picture. And it isn't a sort of, I like it because it isn't people with halos looking unrealistic, which is a lot of religious art. It's like you'd never actually meet someone like that. You know, they're just sort of floating. Um, this is like real history kind of picture because it's this old man peering into a wound. And it's quite a gory picture. But he's sort of checking. Is this really, is it really you? Um, and I love it because it just sort of captures the physicality of this historical encounter. And of course, at the end of this, Thomas isn't doubting Thomas anymore because he's sure. And you would be sure. I don't know whether you believe in life after death. You know, some people do, 40, whatever it was, 45% of people who are non-religious do. Um, I don't know if you believe in life after, sorry, 34% do. Um, I don't know if you believe in life after death, but if you met someone three days after their funeral and then you checked that they died and then they were alive, then you would be sure, wouldn't you? As in that kind of actual evidence that you actually see. And so John writes to these other people and says, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, we saw with our eyes, we looked at, we touched with our hands, can concerning the word of life the life was made manifest we saw it we testified to it we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard he's saying i'm not just telling you a philosophy i'm telling you something that happened 
remember realizing the significance of that as an agnostic myself at university like if this, this isn't just do you like christian ideas which is a very subjective thing you know like you like strawberry ice cream i like the ethics of jesus or good for you i like the music i like the music of marla Oh, I like the game of baseball. You know, I mean, people can be into different things. It's not just ideas subjectively. This is things that happened. Like if it really did happen that there was a blind man and Jesus touched him with mud mixed with spit and then he could see again, something very significant is going on in this village in the first century. If Jesus is executed on a cross and then he's alive again and people check and he really is alive again, then... Something's happened. I, I just remember that being so significant for me, realizing that Christianity wasn't just ideas, it was events. And if events are in history, then they're true or false events. You know, I can't say, oh, the Battle of Hastings for me happened in 1266. <coughs> no, it happened in 1066. But that, that's just, it just was an objective battle, and that's when it was. Well, I can't say, oh, for me, it was between the Belgians and the, um, and the Kiwis. No, it's between the English and the French. You know that history doesn't just move with opinion. Well, you can have opinions about history, but the events themselves, like what actually did happen objectively. I don't, I don't want to say what is your opinion about it. Some people have Christian opinions. Some have, people have Buddhist opinions. What happened though? Like, did this man Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really heal blind people? Did he really walk on water and turn water into wine? Because if he did, you see, then this is true and if he didn't this is false but it's not kind of in between no one who met jesus is on the fence and oh i'm not oh, i'm not sure because they see things that make them very sure um, and I, I would suggest to you if you read their testimony you also can be very sure um, and not only sure but happy and sure so it's not the message that sucks the joy out of the world, according to John. He says, I want to tell you what I've seen and heard. And he, he writes, I, I write this, we write this to make our joy complete. As in they're saying, it's not only true, it's just so brilliant to know the God that made us. To know that we're not here by accidents of molecular collisions, you know, purposelessly after a random big bang. We're here by the design of a loving father who wants to know us. And there's a reason for life and there's a relationship at the heart of life. And the, the Jesus that went to a wedding to celebrate a beautiful relationship also offers us a beautiful relationship with the God that makes us. And John says, wouldn't this just be so great if it was true? And it is true. And we're sure it's true because we saw it and we submit it to you. Are, are you 100% you want to be sure you want to be agnostic? I, I hope not. And what might you do next? Um, just have a look at the evidence. You know, if you're, if you're unsure because you haven't checked, then check and be more sure. Um, and there'll be, I think there'll be various ways you can do that. And Joel might be able to <coughs> tell us about a couple of ways we could take this forward after now. Thank you, Joel.